Hey, this is Alan from Praise. So glad that you are checking out this message from our Sunday morning service. We're right in the middle of a series about the Holy Spirit. All we're doing is we're reading about how the Holy Spirit has moved in ages past in order to better understand how he might move today in unique ways where our world might be primed for him to move in our midst. We're calling it the Holy Spirit, rethinking the spirit of our age. Thank you again for checking it out. And I just believe that God's going to move uniquely in your life as a result. God bless. Welcome to the Holy Spirit. You guys should have laughed more. Pastor Dylan had some good one-liners there, and you guys were not in the right mood to receive them. You better warm up, because otherwise you are going to have a rude awakening in a moment. So you better laugh at least a little bit. Thank you. Welcome to the Holy Spirit. I know, creative title for a sermon series, right? But you know who we're talking about. We are talking about the Holy Spirit. The tagline to it is just rethinking the spirit of our age. We're really looking at the Holy Spirit and tracking how the Holy Spirit has worked really in previous ages and then seeing how that might work out in our own age. Um, And I am stoked about this series. Uh, I think it's going to be super, super good. But as we kick this off, I have every time we have talked about the Holy Spirit or had a series focused on the Holy Spirit, I've received feedback, and in in good feedback, and in some ways, it is important right at the beginning to kind of recognize that there are certain things that people bring to a series like this. And I want to just take a moment, and I want to pause, and I want to pay attention to that, but I want to do something with it, too. Um, because there are some people who bring with them a, a, a fear of maybe their previous experience or non-experience. When you start talking about the Holy Spirit, there's some fear that begins to just kind of well up inside of them. And what I'm going to ask you to do before we do anything else is to take that fear and just take a moment, recognize it, pay attention to it. But then I'm going to ask you for at least a little bit to take that fear and just put it on the shelf, okay? Just put it on the shelf. We'll return to it, and you can return to it as soon as you want, but for just a moment, before you do, just take a moment and just put it on the shelf. For some of us, we bring with us an expectation of what a series like this should look like or shouldn't look like. And what I'm going to ask you to do is just like those who maybe need to take that fear and put it on the shelf, that you would take that expectation and just put it on the shelf for a moment. Third, I think there are some people who bring with them a belief that this does not apply to me. That for whatever reason, maybe background, maybe history, maybe um, who you are today, that what we're about to talk about does not reach to your specific situation. And what I'm going to ask you to do is to take that belief for just a moment and to put it on a shelf, okay? And literally, maybe you need to visualize, if one of those things just hits you right in the heart, visualize yourself going through that experience. And then let's just allow the Holy Spirit to interact with us. Cool? All right. 
Good. For five people, this is going to be awesome. <laughs> Would you do that with me? Lord, you interact with us today. And so, God, interact with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. This week was a big week for my family. Uh, some major transitions, uh, just as we were kind of hitting some things. And, and then also Liz's birthday. She turned uh, uh, older than she was by one year. And <laughs> just realized I was in a corner and I'd been painting the entire time. And <laughs> surprise. And, uh, and so I was feeling nostalgic, right? Like, so... So I started looking at old pictures of us, and then I went back even further and started looking at um, childhood photos of us, okay? And I started with Liz, and I, I looked at this picture, and this picture just brought me such joy. I know, that was exactly how I felt, like the bangs, the sweetness, the, the Lizness of this photo is just over the top, and I was inside, <sighs> But my favorite photo of Liz as we were, I was looking back at them was this one. <laughs> because here's the thing about this photo. This was not Spirit Week, Return to the 80s. This was the 80s, okay? This is all original, honey. Like this is the real deal 80s. Look at the crimped hair, right? Those are shoelaces in her hair, tying it together, bright colors. How about that shirt? Like this is a shirt that is loud. You know what I'm saying? Oh, this photo brings me great joy. Great joy. I had honestly never seen this photo before. And so when I came across it, it was, oh, this is Liz in the 80s, all original, all real. This is her. And then I started looking at photos of me. <laughs> and uh, I want to show you this one. This one. Um... <laughs> yeah, I kind of felt the same way. It was like, oh. Uh, uh. But I'll tell you what, man. That guy was ready to take on the world. Look at that jacket. Pop that collar, buddy. Like... No need for shoulder pads. You got shoulders to carry it all, man. And that smile says, I don't know what's coming, but I'm ready for it. And it's all downhill from there. And, uh, and then, you know, get a little older, and this is my own kind of 80s. No, 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 this is, this is pre-80s. This is, look at that dimple, though. That dimple has a personality. This is the 80s. <laughs> I know, yeah, yeah, please make lots of comments about the hair. Um, but that photo actually reminds me a lot of, of Asher in many ways, except for the mullet, you know. But, but I guess a mullet was a thing because for several years there were mullets. Here's another one. Like still got the mullet. It's, and here I'm just, I look back on it and I'm like, that hair. I mean, flaunt it while you got it, buddy. I mean, like, you know what I'm saying? But this was my own 80s kind of time. And then, and then there was this. And 
these glasses were fantastic because like you could bend them every different direction. Apparently I had just done that showing the photographer, hey, look, I can bend these every direction and then put them back on and that's what you ended up with. This was still elementary and then we transitioned into the awkward middle school years. Let me give you some kind of groundwork for this photo because this was when my best friend Aaron and I decided, you know what, our hair would look better blonde. But we didn't know how to do that and we didn't have permission, so we used lemon juice over like a two-week period in the summer and we stayed outside as much as we could. But instead of turning blonde, it turned orange. His hair was just the same as mine. We did it at the same time. This was middle school for me. But then as I got older and made it into high school, Aaron and I were getting ready to go pick up the ladies for prom and we took this photo. And this photo, I, I know, right? Hey. Um, I don't know what you see, but when I see this, there's a few things in particular. Number one, this is the years when I went tanning. Um, literally laying in a bed, baking my skin because I cared so much what people thought of me. And my hair, like at this point, I got professionally done. So this is frosted, in sync hair. Both ears are pierced at that point, um, and, and yet what I see most of all when I look at this photo was this was the point at which I noticed I think my forehead was bigger than it used to be. And so what I decided to do to overcome the big forehead, because I didn't know fully what was coming, but I started noticing something going on up top, that I would scrunch my forehead. And so in all the photos in my high school years, you can see these lines in my forehead because I'm trying to make my head, forehead seem smaller than it actually was. That's what I see. I see this photo and I just think, man, this guy cared so incredibly much what other people thought of him. And then I think about, and wait on the photo until I'm ready, okay? <laughs> At what point did I reach my peak, you know? Because it's all been downhill, right? Like, so, but at what point, what, I, okay, come on, settle down. <laughs> at what point did I hit my peak and I know, man, this was, this was as good as it gets. And I found the photo that fully encapsulates that moment. Are you ready? Go. That's it, right there. Look at the supreme confidence. I am going to the bathroom, and somebody decides to take a picture. My pants are around my ankle. Does it bother me? Not in the least. I'm like totally good. I've got a hoodie on, hood up, I'm all ready to go. But even in the midst of that confidence, there's also self-care. Look at that thumb in my mouth. I knew what I needed, and I knew how to just care for myself emotionally. This is, without a doubt, a peak. And, and you can tell because it obviously overwhelmed the camera. You know what I'm saying? Like, the camera could not handle the awesomeness that is me in this moment. And yes, truly, from that moment on, it was kind of like a downhill thing. Um, I, I wonder how jarring it is to see pictures of your friends when they were kids. I mean, at the very least, that's probably the first time you've seen a picture of somebody with their pants around their ankles in church. But... 
When you've not known your friends since they were growing up, and, and, and you've known them in the now, when you see photos of them when they were younger, like how jarring for you is that? It's jarring for me. And I think it's jarring for a few reasons. Number one, you know them as they are today. You know me as middle-aged me, right? No hair on top. I, I, I weigh more than I did then in those photos. And yet, when you look back at those photos, you can see, at least when I was looking at Liz, I could see, I could see who she was before, but I could also watch as the process of becoming was happening. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, so even as it's jarring because you like see that person before, you also kind of can see in it the personality of who they are today and maybe even some of the journey that they went on to get from there to where they are here. And you have this experience every time you see a friend who posts a or shares a childhood photo. You watch first as you see someone who is not who you know today, but you can also in some ways see the process of becoming. And I wonder if we could see a childhood photo of our world, of our culture, of our age, what would that look like? And maybe more importantly, what would that do to us? For us to first be jarred out of the moment, but also maybe in that process of watching the becoming, that you would see and know that moment even better than you did before. Does that make sense? You following me? Because that's what I want to do today. I want to look at one of the childhood photos of our culture, of our world. I want to see that moment and see what we better understand of today as a result. In some ways, the simplicity of this series is going to be this that all we're going to do is we're going to track how the Holy Spirit moves in ages that are prior to our own so that we can understand maybe better how the Holy Spirit might move today. And as we watch, because he does change. As, and it's not like childhood photos of the Holy Spirit. It is photos, moments, kind of snapshots of how the Holy Spirit worked in relation to a childhood world, a, a world that is becoming what it is today. And I'm not, I'm not saying we've arrived by any chance in our world. In fact, if anything, I would say we're in the awkward middle school years, right? We, we're not there yet. But there is this process of becoming that the Holy Spirit has been a part of. And I want to just track and see how that works. So today we're going to be in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Acts chapter 17. In Acts 17, Paul's interacting with a world that is remarkably different and yet remarkably similar to our own. Uh, sorry, Acts chapter 17. Did I say 15? I meant at 17. Did I say 17? Cool. Then I was spot on. I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so he's in Athens. And as he's in Athens, he, he looks around and he sees all these different statues to foreign gods or different gods. Shouldn't say foreign gods because these gods were the Greek gods, right? And he's in Athens. He's not in the Middle East. Like he is in what is the, the beginning of the Western world. If you want to know where it began, it began in many ways. The Western understanding of how things work began there. But as he shares some things or talks about some things, I just want to step back and I want to look at that. Because you can see in many ways the childhood of where we are today. 
Okay, so Acts chapter 17. I'm going to start reading in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. And he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. So this is Athens. This is the center of, in that day at least, the Western thought. I mean, this is the place where Socrates and Plato and Aristotle were really at their best. And even though Athens in this moment was not at the height of its power, in so many ways, it was kind of on the backside of that. It's still the place where Western thought and the way we um, use logic really came from. It began here in this place. And much of the Bible, as we read it, comes from Eastern thought. Like you see the Eastern world there. Here you see the gospel kind of interacting with the Western world. And it's really, for that reason, just important to see what happens here. Many of you know this story already, of course, but, but just stopping and thinking about it in light of that is, I think, important. So he goes to Athens. He begins by reasoning with those in the synagogue, and then he starts sharing in the public spaces. And as he does, at least somebody pays attention. And so then he starts to even talk with and debate with um, some philosophers. Verse 18, he also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And when he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. So these philosophers apparently don't have, a, at least some of them, don't have a big or high opinion of what Paul has to say. And so they call him a babbler, which is in general what we do when there is someone outside of our own culture or doesn't know the right way to say things according to our ways of thinking. Often we denigrate them. I mean, not we, I'm saying we, like this is the way humanity works. In fact, the word barbarian comes from the Romans when they were interacting and the Greeks when they were interacting with uh, the tribes that were further north. The, the language sounded like as they were talking lots of bar, 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 and so they called them barbarians, barbarians. That's that denigrating term comes from the fact that they didn't know how to speak the way that they spoke in their world. And so, in this moment, Paul is called a babbler. And they, at least some of them, don't think very highly of him, but some of them want to know more. Verse 19, then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You are saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as all the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. So they bring him to a place called the Areopagus, and that's what it says in the original. It's Mars Hill. This is a very specific place and really kind of the center of Athens. It's a hill that's at the base of the Parthenon, which is this tall outcropping right in the middle um, and the Parthenon, the, the, the Athenian um, temple, the temple of Athena is built on top of it. But the Areopagus is a hill that's really at the base of that large outcropping. And in so many ways, I think that's a beautiful metaphor for where they were as a city. They were not at their height. It was kind of like a lesser Athens in this 
moment. And this Areopagus, this kind of outcropping of stone that kind of lived in the shadow of the Parthenon, was kind of where Athens was in general. They lived in the shadow of their own previous beliefs and or um, height of their power when they were the power of the world, but they weren't there anymore. And so the Areopagus is the place where they would go in order to discuss things. And so that's where Paul goes. I've never been there. I want to go at some point um, if God would allow it. But that hill is the place where Paul goes. While I haven't been there, I know some people who have. Uh, Jimmy and Yvonne Oaks uh, have been there. If you don't know who they are, here's a picture of them. They are missionaries with Teen Challenge. Whoop, whoop, as a part of praise. And uh, they are awesome. If you don't know Jimmy and Yvonne, you should. They are the coolest, right? But currently, or before they were missionaries with Teen Challenge, they were missionaries to Greece. And as part of that, they went to the Areopagus. And, and if in that day when Paul was there, it was the place where people go, would go for the exchange of ideas and philosophy and religion. Today, it's a tourist location during the day. And at night, it's the place where the Greeks will go to exchange other things. Okay, so um, Yvonne called it Makeout Rock. It's not Mars Hill anymore, it's Makeout Hill. And Jimmy said, yeah, that's putting it mildly, okay? So, so this is not the same place that it once was. And in so many ways, it kind of shows even what our age is like. If then it was an exchange of ideas, now it's all just about pleasure and living and distraction. That's all that it is today. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. And one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples and human needs can't, or human hands can't serve his needs for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything and he satisfies every need. Luke is telling us something super important here in this moment when he's writing this. Um, we know that God gives life and breath to everything, right? He satisfies every need. Colossians tells us that, um, that that happens in Jesus Christ, that in Jesus, he was the firstborn of creation, the image of the invisible God, that everything was made through him and for him and by him. That was all that was made, everything seen and unseen. That's what Colossians tells us. But Jesus wasn't the only one who was involved in creation, the Spirit was as well. In fact, it's important for us to recognize that the entire Trinity was involved in the creative experience. But Jesus is the word that was spoken. When it says, uh, and God said, John tells us that that word, the thing that was spoken was actually Jesus, right? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That is Jesus. So when God spoke and said, let there be, according to what the Bible tells us, that speaking, that word was, that made creation what it is, was Jesus, okay? But 
he wasn't the only one who participated in that. The entire Trinity did, and Genesis actually tells us very specifically that the Spirit did. If we go all the way back, and I'm going to real fast, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. That word formless is a really interesting word. It means chaos. And yet it's only used in two places in the Bible, which is what's so interesting about it. It was formless, and it shows up in in Deuteronomy as well. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 9, it actually shows up. And it's, it's used in a different sense there, but still a chaotic kind of spot, right? But then it says, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters, Now, that word hovering is also an interesting word that actually only shows up in two different passages in the entire Bible. Here, right at the beginning, talking about the Spirit hovering over this chaotic kind of scene. And in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 9 through 11. These two words only show up in two places, and they show up together in both. Isn't that interesting? You should read Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 9 through 11 at some point. But what it's talking about there is how the Holy Spirit is, or how God is, in a moment, calling Jacob out of his own chaotic wasteland. And as he calls him out of that, the same language that is used at creation is used there. It's pretty important that that happens, and it speaks something to us. But in this moment, here's this picture, and I love this picture, and I always return to this picture. Because if you want to know how the Holy Spirit was involved at creation, here it is. He was in that moment, in all the chaos after God began, He was the one who was over it all and creating out of chaos order. Irenaeus, who is a um, a philosopher, uh, not a philosopher, he was a, a theologian in the, like 150 AD. He described the Word and the Spirit as the two hands of God in creation, that they were both involved, okay? That the Word, God spoke, but the Spirit also making happen, that both were involved. And really, it's Trinitarian in general. This was a Trinitarian. Father, Son, Holy Spirit are all involved here. But the Spirit is hovering over this creation, hovering over chaos. But that's not the only place that the Spirit shows up, is it? Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed the breath. And that word breath is the same word as spirit. He breathed the spirit of life, breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. The same word for breath is the same word as spirit. He breathed his spirit into him. This is a rock. And this is, in many ways, made of... Much of the same stuff that makes you and me who we are. In this is oxygen and carbon and magnesium and calcium and potassium. 
These are the elements that make up the crust of what the earth is. And these are many of the same things that are in you and in me. And this rock is a thing. It exists. You can touch it. You can feel it. It is. It has borders. It ends. It comes to the end of itself and it stops. And in so many ways, that is what we are. We are a thing. And we are made of many of these same things. And you can touch us and you can feel us. And there are borders. And at some point, we come to the end of ourselves. In many ways, these things and this is similar. But there is also something about me that is totally unlike this rock. First, I am alive. But even still, there are other things that are alive that are made of many of the same things that make me who I am. We are made of the same stuff because we all come from the very crust of the earth, the dust of the ground, you might say. But then there is still, even in a plant or an animal, something different about me that makes me who I am. And it comes to this moment right here where God breathes his spirit into humanity. He speaks and he makes, he creates humanity, but then he breathes into him. And that makes me totally unlike this, totally like unlike anything else that has ever existed. Because in me, in my very being, is the spirit here. And this is what Paul is talking about in Acts chapter 17. When he says... To the Athenians, when he says, uh, and human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. What is Paul talking about in this verse? He is talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives life and breath, and everything. And he satisfies every need. Paul keeps talking. Verse 26. For from one man he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. In him we live and move and exist. We have our being. And this is again speaking of the Holy Spirit. And then Paul says, and you know those poets that you sometimes quote, those poets, they knew something, or at the very least, they had a hint of something, or they said something which points to a much deeper truth. He said, I see something here that I want to, t to tie in with. He says, let's talk about what they had to say about who you are. So I read this, and I think, man, don't you wish sometimes people could talk to each other when they disagree? Because this is not our world. There is no Areopagus for us. Instead of coming together and having a conversation with people that you might disagree with or I might disagree with, we instead find echo chambers. And we're really good at that. 
finding a bunch of people who agree with us, and then yelling at them like they don't. This is what we do. This is humanity. This is our experience. This is our age. But more than that, in our age, everything has been flattened out. If there was the Parthenon and then the Areopagus, today we stand on flat ground. We have taken all of the Spirit and tried to suck him out of our experience. Instead, we are, in general, humanists. We believe we are the end of ourselves. We are all that there is, and there is nothing beyond what we can see and nothing more, or so we say. But the further along we get in our scientific discovery, we find that actually turns out there is more. And there is more than we can see or feel or touch. And then we wonder, why is it that we feel as if we're haunted? Because our world may be flattened out and we say that there is nothing beyond this world. And for some of us, we look at those around us and we're like, I don't understand their viewpoint. Because it seems like if this is all there is, isn't that a terrible way to live? And so we look and we try to engage, but we don't understand that viewpoint. And I've had plenty of conversation with plenty of people who are in this place. We talk to somebody and we're like, wait, I don't understand how you could live that way. It's totally flat. Any religious experience, any seeking for higher power or God or all of that is removed and they're okay with it. But at the same time that they're okay with it, there's like just a little bit of a sense of still something not quite right. They, they live in a haunted world. What I mean by that is, even like my family's health system is mercy. Mercy St. John's. That hospital exists because of Christianity. My family in Kenosha, when I was born, I was born in a hospital called St. Catherine's in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And that hospital, since bought by a major corporation, because that's what they do with all the <laughs> Catholic hospitals at this point, is still named St. Catherine's. Even though it's owned by some major corporation, it's still known as St. Catherine's. And why is that? Because much of our health system today, much began as a result of Christianity. It began in the Middle Ages and even before that as there was this desire to make a difference for people. Our education, our colleges and educational systems in many ways derived from Christian or origins in the Middle Ages. Many, if not most, of the prestigious colleges in the United States began on a biblical foundation. And so even still, in spite of the fact that they may have departed from that, you still feel or sense or know that that's the case. Our legal system today is built on the legal systems of the Bible. Our literature and languages have been influenced by the development and the standardization of Scripture. Our ethics and morality systems are based out of the frameworks and the morality of the Bible. Our charities, our welfare, our governing documents as a nation, even the holidays we celebrate in the United States are by and large a result of the Christian faith. We are haunted by it. Even our art and our architecture was developed through the patrons provided in the church. 
And it's all there and it's all a part of our experience. And even though in general, in our age, we say, ah, but he doesn't exist and there's nothing more than what we see with our eyes, we're still haunted by it because it's all around us. Even to this day, people who, who love music and love Mozart's Requiem, and they don't realize that, that is a, a, that's about life and death and faith and they pretend it's not, like it's just art, but it pointed at something. And now they think it just points at itself. It didn't. It pointed somewhere else. It pointed to the experience of life and death and God and who we are in humanity. And now it's removed from that. But we're still haunted by it. We sense that there is somehow something more. Why? Because in him we live and we move and we have our being. He himself gives life and breath to everything and he satisfies every need and we can't get away from that no matter how much we flatten things out we are still haunted by this you know the thing about haunted houses i've never lived in one never seen one i don't know if there are haunted houses like i'm all i've seen some houses that look like from the outside that they might be haunted but i have watched scooby-doo <laughs> and everything important in life i have learned from scooby-doo Scooby-Dooby-Doo has taught me um, that critical thinking and teamwork and facing my fears and empathy and understanding and humor and the importance of unmasking the truth. I asked Chad GPT, what does Scooby-Doo teach me about life? And that's what I came up with. Just so you know. <laughs> that's pretty good, I thought. <laughs> Anyways. But in Scooby-Doo and the houses that are haunted, it seems like at the most inopportune times, they scare you. At the most inopportune times, a door opens when it shouldn't. Or a door closes when it shouldn't. Or you see or you hear or you experience something that you have no explanation for. Or you pretend does not exist. The thing about haunted houses is when you are not expecting it, you find out there's something more than you want to believe is there, okay? And if that's true, let us come back to the Holy Spirit and what I believe is a haunted age. I made some slime yesterday. I've never made slime before, but I decided I wanted to make some slime. So I did what you always do when you're making slime. Okay, nobody else has ever made any slime in their lives. Lame. So I took some water. Elmer's glue. Elmer's glue is a big part of slime. I wanted to use this as an illustration, and, uh, and then I realized it wouldn't work. So made this slime, Elmer's glue. And then you take water, and then you take uh, liquid starch, and you mix it all together. And that's how you make slime. And so that's how I made this slime, just with those things. Yeah, right? Ooh, you were like, what's going to happen, right? But then I decided to add something else to this slime. I added iron filings. And I mixed it together until... It was fully in the slime, like the very being of the slime was inundated with it. 
And it didn't turn out the same color as it did in the photos, which I was super bummed about. But then I realized that it was no longer just slime. It was something more. Let's pretend for a moment that you were God. Imagine you were God. For some of you, that might be a little too easy. <laughs> but imagine for a moment you're God. And let's say you made humanity. And in so many ways, it is all of the same elements as everything else around humanity. But then after that, you decide to take something else. And this is iron filings. And you decide to put that within humanity. And not just in a superficial way, but to the very depths of the being of what makes a human human is the Spirit of God inside. Now, this is no longer just a thing. This becomes someone so very much more. This is no longer slime. This is now magnetic slime. And as I was playing around with it last night, and again, you couldn't see it because you won't get the effect, and I, but I just decided to take a magnet and to use that magnet on the slime. I took the magnet and I just kind of moved it over the top of the slime. So interesting because it reacts. As the force that is in this magnet passes over the top of the slime, it's almost as if the slime comes alive. It moves and it begins to stretch and pull and reach towards the magnet. So let's say you are God and you created humanity and at a deeper level than even DNA you put your very spirit inside of humanity. And then you decide to change the world. And how you're going to do it is through your people. How would you do that? You would give them the magnet. You would pour out your spirit on your people. And you would give them the power at a deep level to speak to the depths of humanity. So that when they speak, it would not be them speaking, but the Holy Spirit. And, and, and people who have no idea, who have flattened their experience and said there is no God, would not know why the depths of their being and desire and longing and needing is reaching out. They would have reactions that they would not understand. There would be sounds that they cannot explain. And they would want something more. This is how you would do it, wouldn't it be? You would give your power to your people 
and they would be able to speak to the depths of humanity. In so many ways, this is what it means to be Pentecostal. The God who has breathed his spirit inside of all humanity, and all humanity lives and moves and has its being within that spirit, and the spirit is at the depths of their soul. They don't even know that the spirit is there, but then things happen that they cannot explain, and it seems as if the world is haunted. And then right into the middle of that, you drop God's people who have the very source code of humanity. They have the key that unlocks every door. That's what it means to be Pentecostal, to be able to speak to people, to be able to hear his voice and share that with others. And people don't know why they respond the way that they do. You know, I've, I've learned time and time again, even on Sunday mornings, that this happens. And what was interesting was, is even when I was, that magnet was kind of moving over that slime and the magnetic slime was responding to it. And it, boy, it just felt alive. And sometimes it would just move a little bit. Would just respond a little bit. It was moved. It was moved by that power passing over it. But then sometimes that same magnetic slime would actually reach out and seem to move on its own. So there were times when it was moved, and there was times when it moved. There were times when it refused to move, but it was moved anyways. And then there was times when it just reached out and it said, I don't care, I'm going. You know? Um, Often on Sunday mornings, when people come to praise, it is a moving experience to be in the presence of a lot of believers who are singing, worshiping, hear the word of God, allow the spirit to move in our midst. And we respond to it. We feel something inside. And often it can even bring you to tears. Like, but then not do anything with it. Not respond to it. And that's the spirit inside of you. It is the fact that God breathed into you his very spirit at creation. When he made you, the moment you were conceived, you became something other than this. And so as a result, you respond a certain way when he's present. When the spirit begins to hover, you know? And in the same way that the spirit hovered, the language there in Deuteronomy, I'm just going to share it, I'm going to spoil it, is of an eagle over a nest, hovering. That's how God was hovering over Jacob as he called him out of that chaos, right? Which means that he still does that today. And so his spirit, when it begins to hover and move, we react to it. Why? Because at the very depths of who we are, lower than the DNA, we are spirit. It's in our very essence and being. We are who we are because the spirit is there and we react to it. But then there's a moment when it becomes something so much more. 
And that is that step of faith. And so if you're in here, if you're joining online and you have never ever stepped out and actually moved as a response to the Holy Spirit, here's what Paul would say to you today. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of you, your own poets have said, we are his offspring. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times. But now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt. But others said, we want to hear more about this later. And that ended Paul's discussion with them. But some joined him and became believers. And among them were Dionysus, a member of the council, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Sometimes when the Holy Spirit moves, some don't respond, but some do. And when they do hear the Holy Spirit speaking to them, and they step out in faith and put that faith in Jesus Christ, then everything changes. And that same spirit that is at the core of their being comes alive. And it's a new thing. It's a new day. It's a new creation in Christ Jesus. This is how the Holy Spirit moves. And this is just what we see in the first couple chapters of Genesis. Because at the very core of our being, this is who we are. We are those who have been breathed into by the very Spirit of God. So what do you do with that sort of power? What do you do when there's a friend that you do not understand where he comes from? Or you've got a child that you don't understand why or how they could live that way where there's just no God and everything is flattened out. Know this, they live in a haunted world. They live in a haunted world, and even if they flatten everything out, there are still things that are unexplained or unexplainable, and they are still wondering at that world. And you have in you the very Spirit of God that calls to the depths of their being. Deep cries out to deep. The Spirit hovers over the chaos and calls creation and order out of it. And this is the power that God has given to you. So I look around at our world, our secular age, our flattened experience, and I believe deeply, deeply believe that the time is ripe, that it is now. That for those who have lived in a haunted world and wondered at it for so long, that when the Spirit of God inside of you begins to speak to them, that they won't even understand it, but they will react to it. And some, not all, but some, will respond by repenting and putting their faith in Jesus Christ for the salvation of their sins. But this begins with you. It begins with me.